0: Welcome, I have Steve Hoffman, Captain Hoff, a celebrity, well, I can call it a celebrity, right? In Silicon Valley. Um, so Steve is known as Captain Hopp as the CEO of Founderspace, one of the world's leading incubators and accelerators. He's also a serial entrepreneur, an angel investor, limited partner at August Capital, and author of Make Elephants Fly, an award-winning book on radical innovation and the Five Forces, an extraordinary journey into the minds and ideas of the people and the technology poised to reshape our world. Recently, Mr. Hoffman completed his new book, Surviving a Startup to be published by HarperCollins. Tim Draper, the multi-millionaire startup investor, said this about the book. Read this book before you launch your startup. It could save you much emotional turmoil. This book answers the question why over 90% of startups fail and what is needed to succeed. Surviving a startup is full of sage advice rich stories, cutting edge information, and is comprehensive both on the macro and micro levels. It's not only a sort of Bible or a mini encyclopedia for startup founders, in my opinion, but for business leaders of all types in this digital age. I find it really fun to read. Uh, Here is a generous gift to uh, anyone in my audience. For limited time, Mr. Hoffman will give away access to his full online startup program for everyone who purchases a book. Please visit his website, www.founderspace.com promo. Okay, Captain Hoff, <laughs> my questions for you. I have lots of questions, okay. Well, I wanna um,
1: thank you for all the kind words. That's so nice of you.
0: Oh, sure, my pleasure. First question is, during the initial ideation stage, you wisely advised about falling, no, failing fast, like a serial baby killer. Try to prove everything that may go wrong with the idea. The baby is the idea, OK? And after trashing it, and you may cry, but it won't feel a thing. <laughs> it was so funny. Uh, only when you have exhausted all possible ways to shatter your vision should you start to believe in it. That is just, well, awesome. So my question is, do you see many founders spend too much time fixated about an idea and not letting go? If yes, how do they get out of that?
1: So the answer is absolutely. So I've been a startup founder. I founded three venture-funded startups, did two bootstrap startups, and I understand what it's like to fall in love with your idea. You know, when you give birth to an idea, it's like giving birth to a baby. You can't help but love it because it's yours and your baby always looks the most beautiful, no matter what anybody else thinks. So this creates a problem, a dilemma for entrepreneurs. You really, in order to take the leap into entrepreneurship, you have to be the type of person who can believe in their ideas. If you can't believe in your ideas, you can't be an entrepreneur. But the other side of that coin is that if you believe too much in your ideas and don't look at what's really going on around you in the real world, you will risk failing. And this is one of the biggest reasons I've seen entrepreneurs fail. I work with entrepreneurs all the time, hundreds of entrepreneurs, and all of them love their ideas, but the really good ones train themselves. They're disciplined enough to actually put their love aside and say, is this idea worth pursuing and question it and doubt it. And if the evidence shows that the idea will not take them all the way to their dream of building a great company. They kill it at the earliest possible moment. That's why I say a serial baby killer kill it. You have to kill your ideas to move forward. Now, it may not be the whole idea. It may be like a piece of your idea, um, but you have to continually do this And really if you want to succeed, it's not how passionately you feel about your idea. That will not make you succeed. It's how, it's actually how quickly and effectively you're able to understand the implications of your idea, test those out in the real world, mm-hmm. get real feedback, and then understand what that feedback means. Should you move forward or should you abandon it or should you change it? and then take your next step. The entrepreneurs who go through that process over and over and over very quickly are the ones who usually wind up succeeding right. because it's a matter if you just usually, I mean 99 out of hundred times, the first idea you have is wrong. And it's not, it may not be entirely wrong but there are pieces of it that you don't understand. And this is because it's only an idea. You haven't taken it into the world yet. You haven't given birth to it. You haven't seen what it actually can do in the real world. So until you get that information, it you, you don't know, you really know very little. And the more information you get, which is your journey, your journey is to fall in love, not with your idea, but with the, the direction you're headed, the process of gathering information, analyzing information and making really intelligent decisions based on that.
0: Right. So you also said in your book that, um, uh... Uh, a great forum for entrepreneurs to test their ideas is to present to and pitch to different groups and get feedback, okay? That also exposes them to the risk that uh, their ideas exposed to the world and may be quote unquote stolen by others. Uh, how, do you, how do you reconcile this?
1: It is always a risk to take an idea that's inside your head and put it out into the real world. Will people copy it? Can they copy it? Absolutely. I mean, all of us copy ideas. And in fact, the idea you had, has probably come from a lot of different places, right? It's, you're, you're probably not the first one to think of it. You're prob- it's probably not as original as you want to believe. Um, there are almost surely other people around the world. The world's a big place with billions of people working on similar ideas what determines whether you succeed or not is not having the idea. It's actually where you go with the idea. The idea is literally just a starting point of a long journey. Uh So what I tell people is if the idea, if you keep the idea to yourself, if you don't show it to people, if you don't put it out there and start to get feedback, then all you don't really understand your idea because you haven't gotten, uh, building a business is not building a business in your head. That's a fantasy. Building a business is building a business in the real world, which means you have to figure out how to put your idea safely into the real world where it can grow and it can actually, you can get all, you can see the interactions between what you thought would happen and what really happened. Right. So it's like you have a baby, right? You right. don't want to keep your baby locked in a closet. right? It's never <laughs> going to grow up. It's never going to learn anything. You're never going to see what type of baby you could have had, right. keeping it locked in the closet. You have to put that baby into the real world. Right. But You want to put it into a safe place. So right. when I say present your idea to the world, I mean exactly that. You really need to figure out what's the best place you can put your baby to get so it can learn and grow as fast as possible, but doesn't get you know, squashed, killed, right. eaten by a lion. You know? So you don't <laughs> walk up to a conference filled with competitors and explain all your ideas to them. That's not what I'm talking about. Getting feedback is actually uh, targeting the people who can really help you right? Who can really help you? Trusted advisors, uh, potential customers. Yes, some of them uh, may in fact wind up stealing your idea, but it's the risk of your idea dying because it's, it's undernourished. You haven't put it out into the real world and it doesn't grow up healthy is much greater than the risk of somebody else killing your idea or stealing your idea. So I always say, your, your friend is information. Your goal is to find information. Your goal isn't to keep things to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I want to give a great example of this to all of you out there. You know, uh, the, we all know uh, what VR is, right? Virtual reality. Well, VR started out as an idea. A lot of people had this idea. It wasn't just Palmer Lucky, the one who started Oculus, who got, he got all the fame, right? By putting it out there. But actually that idea was gestating around the world in research laboratories, universities, people had made VR devices. Palmer Lucky really wasn't a scientist. He wasn't like at the forefront of the technology. He was actually using technology developed by USC and other sources that they had developed. But he was the first one to take that idea, visualize it, put it out there on Kickstarter for the real world to see and then start it moving. And he got moving so fast that his company sold for billions of dollars before he even launched a product. Now, all the other people out there, there may have been much, many smart people, brilliant people in the field who knew a lot more than he did about this idea, but because they kept it in their labs, (laughs) they didn't take it into the real world, their babies never grew up, so they never, made that step and he was willing to take the risk, uh, go out there, uh, articulate this idea in a very clear way. You know, he did a video of what VR could be Mm -hmm. and he created the sensation around that idea and was able to be the one who brought Oculus, which is now part of Facebook, Mm -hmm. uh, to market. So you need to follow that path rather than the other path.
0: Right, and if people are cautious about their revolutionary ideas they can always use an nda and go to a targeted limited audience the you know advisors and entrepreneurs and people like you who they trust to get some feedback if they don't want to just flash it to the entire world you know yeah. so i
1: would say if you're presenting your idea to a big corporation like microsoft or some or somebody like that it's you can get them to sign an nda if you're presenting your idea To like a venture capitalist like me, we usually will not sign an NDA. And the reason is not because we want to steal your idea, but because we don't want to get sued. We see too many ideas from too many startups, and there are too many similarities out there. And you may think your idea is totally original, but there's probably some other startup working on something that has some overlap with that, probably not exactly the same. And we may wind up funding that company over your company. So most VCs I know will not sign NDAs. Huh. Most advisors, maybe you know, they might sign it. Uh, if you go out to potential customers, you know, my my gut feeling is don't waste your time with NDAs. They're usually not worth the paper they're printed on. Uh, you know, what kills your idea usually is not somebody stealing it. Right. It's it's you fumbling the execution of your idea, not learning how to put all the right pieces together, not moving fast enough, not gaining money and momentum. That's what kills your idea, not somebody copying it. So worry less about the copying and more about your own execution.
0: That is such a good segue to next question. Um, I'm completely with you that uh, just ideas are just a starting point we need to focus, the entrepreneurs need to focus on bringing in the best talents who are all in. So my question is, if all in means that they may have to, quote unquote, starve along with the startup without pay, but only the promise of equity, um, and they better not hold a daytime job and be the founder's amplifiers, not diminishers, and the talents should be the best of the best and have a dual die mentality, work for mission over money and give up their six figure jobs and to work for equity and be willing to go down with the ship. How long can this realistically last during the bootstrap stage before getting any investment? Is it too much to ask?
1: So it can last a very, very short time Or an extremely painfully long time. Now, you know, there is no limit as long as you have the will and the means to keep surviving and funding your own company, you can go on forever in the bootstrap mode, even though you may not be making much progress at all. That's not the goal, but that I've seen it happen. I've seen people work on these bootstrap startups for a decade and they go nowhere. Um, And then I've seen people work on them for a month and they, boom, they're like going at hyper speed. So uh, the point is, I usually say as a rule of thumb, before you dive into a startup, you should be able to survive without a job and cover all the expenses of the startup for a year, at least six months at the minimum at least six months, because it's gonna take you at a minimum six months uh, on average to raise money. And a, a lot of times it goes out a full year. So, because you think, oh, I can do this much faster and then you have problems and you know, and, and things don't gel. And, it, and like I said, you, know, you could literally have your idea and start bootstrapping it and get funded a week later. That can happen, uh, especially if you know some wealthy people <laughs> and do you have you know, something that appeals to them? But uh, realistically, you know, if you can say, look, I, me and my team can go for a year on this idea and iterate on it and change it and test this and test that until we figure it out, uh, that's, uh, that's a good you're in a good position to take the leap into doing a startup.
0: Okay, so my next question is, I also see your point of generously giving equity Uh, to co-founders at the early stage and other key members. But how much is too much to give away the equity?
1: This is a really personal question and a difficult question and a question I get asked a lot by startup founders. They ask me, you know, how much, how much should I realistically give to them? Well, I will tell you nine out of 10 times they are giving too little. So most people think about it. They will err on the side of keeping more for themselves. You know, that's our nature. And, you know, it's natural. If you started the company, if you put in time and money before you bring in other people, you feel like you are owed more than them because you have taken a bigger risk. And it was you who started this whole thing. So uh, a lot of people will, will not give enough to their co-founders to really make them a part of the core team and I will tell you in the end when all is said and done if your company is successful I guarantee if you if it's your company you will wind up with a lot of money you know how much money how much money do you realistically need you know it does you know is it a hundred million a million, hundred? Five hundred? you know whatever um you uh But the hard part is getting the right people onto the team. So I say, figure out how necessary. First of all, don't give less equity uh, and go for less capable people. Because this is a mistake a lot of people make. They're like, oh, this person will work for free or this person will work for like very little uh, percentage of my company, 0.01%. You know, I'll just give them a few shares. That's worth it. It's not worth it. It's better to give away more of your company and get on great people. So I usually say, if you are the founder and if you started this company, like you're the founder and CEO and you started it on your own and you've been going a few months already before you bring people on, you should have more shares than the other participants, but you don't have to have disproportionately more. So you may have 20% more shares than them, 30%, 50%, uh, you may have double them, but you start to get over that and it really becomes lopsided uh, in the fact that they're probably, if you really want them to take a big risk, if they are really super talented, as talented as you are, but in a different area, you know how much are they worth they're worth as much as you right maybe you put in a few months maybe you put in a few dollars but there's a long road ahead of you you are just at the very beginning you may think oh i've put three months or five months into this company already you may think that's a lot but it's not you know this is a long journey now you can make sure that those shares you give them vest over time so you don't give it to them all at once you do a four-year vesting schedule so basically uh, they get uh, some shares every month, that vest. And if they quit, they only are left with what they earned. Yes. And you can put a cliff on that. A cliff means there's a certain date by which if, they, if, it, if the relationship doesn't work out, they don't get any shares. So if they don't stick around six months, nine months, or a year, whatever you decide, they don't get any shares. But if they stick around, then they get that full six months or nine months worth of shares at that point, because you really know they're a good fit with the company and they're going all the way. Okay,
0: good. So uh, your book stated that the number one reason for a startup to fail, accounting 42% is no product market fit and you caution against inventing your own market, okay? But Steve Jobs famously said this, the market does not know what it wants. We tell the market what they want. What do you think of that?
1: So here's what I think. Uh, What Steve Jobs was saying was slightly different, although it sounds the same. So when we say a product market fit, we mean your products fly off the shelf. People love them. And every one of Steve Jobs' products had a perfect, not everyone, I should say the Lisa, the Newton, there were ones that didn't have a product market fit that never went anywhere. But you look at the iPod, the iPhone, you know, the Mac, they had product market fits. When people saw them, they went crazy over them. What Steve Jobs was saying there was, at the beginning stage, when you have an idea, just an idea, right? You, uh, and you really don't know what you want to do. You can't go to your customers and say, what should I build? You know, you know, should I go build this or that? You can't. They're not going to be able to envision the future. They can't tell you what to build. Like his customers, you know, the average person, right? Wouldn't be able to conceptualize the iPhone. That was Steve Jobs' job. <laughs> And his team's job was to conceptualize the iPhone. You know, when at the average person, they're like, I can't tell you what I want you to build, right? They're not good at that. That's what he meant by not asking the market. Don't go to your customers and ask them what you should build. You need to build it, but then you need to make sure that it's what they want. So the product market fit is once once you build it, you need, need to make sure it aligns with their wants and needs. Mm-hmm. So what you can do, what you can ask the customers, is what do you need? Like, what do you need? You know, Henry Ford had this uh, this saying, which is similar to Steve Jobs. You know, if I would have asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, because all they knew was horses. They didn't know, you know, that cars weren't a, a, a product that people could afford and buy. They weren't readily available. They are still experimental. So... would have said, give me a faster horse. But what they're really saying is I want to get from point A to point B faster, Mm -hmm. faster, more conveniently, you know, with, uh, you know, let, uh, you know, I don't have to, all the trouble you have with horses, which we don't have to deal with anymore. (laughs) But that's what they were telling uh, Henry Ford. So he wouldn't ask them what they, the product he should make a car, he would ask them what they need and what they want, what they want is to get around faster and more conveniently. And then he has to come up with the idea a car. This car could solve their need. Then he has to test the market, like bring the the early ones to market and see if people really react the way he thinks they're going to react. If they do, it's called a product market fit.
0: Yes, yes. I remember Uh, right at the time when iPhone uh, first surfaced, I was out of my paper printed calendar uh, space to calendar everything in a day, because there's, you know, there's only, ho- however large the calendar, there's only a finite space. And I was like, this, this cannot go anywhere because I, I change sometimes, you know, the appointments. And then what do I do? Use wipeout, you know, and then boom, iPhone. It solves all these uh, problems. And also is a, it's a video, it's, you know, a camera. Uh, it's just the genius is in detecting the need and matching that need with a innovative product. And,
1: and Steve Jobs was not just brilliant at that, he was brilliant at also um, really recognizing a products earlier and executing on how to bring them to market and make them better. Because before the iPhone, there were a number of products. I remember using a Palm Pilot. So for those of you in the early days, it was basically you know, a personal digital assistant that you would use. And then they came up with the Palm Trio, which would that, combine that with a phone. And that was essentially the iPhone. It was the iPhone before iPhone. So Steve Jobs saw these products. He was immersed in this area. He saw, like he, when he used those other products, he was like, wow, these things are amazing, you know? This is where the market's heading. So it wasn't that he came up with all these ideas on his own, right? He saw that people, he wanted to use them, people around him, all the techies were using them. And then he figured out how to take this mass market and to the next level.
0: Mm -hmm. And make it simpler, easier, and scalable.
1: Yes, Yes. And, and so Steve, the brilliance of Steve Jobs was, Um, you know, you don't come up with all the great ideas, you know, most of the great ideas are already out there. It's what you do with them and where you take them that matters. And he, Steve Jobs was just really uh, good at spotting those ideas. Like when he went into Xerox PARC, he didn't invent the whole UI for the Mac out of thin air, right? That came out of Xerox PARC. It was all there in the experimental stage, but they didn't know what to do with it. They were like geeks in a lab, right? And Steve Jobs saw that and he actually knew how to take that and productize
0: it Mm -hmm. and that
1: became the macintosh yes
0: take the idea and productize it that's the key yes yeah
1: so he took the idea productized it he but there was always a demand there before he went there was always a product market fit for these products so there were customers out there who really 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 wanted those products and you see steve jobs wasn't perfect like he had many things that didn't work like the next you know the next computer, you know, was supposed to be this huge, incredible hit that would replace the Macintosh. Well, it never really took off, right? There wasn't the demand out there. Even though it was an incredible product, there wasn't uh, the demand for what he was building at the time he was building it in the way he was building it.
0: Right, okay. So next question is, um, I'm impressed by your insights um, about the importance of brand building and marketing Okay, that's music to my ears. And you listed that the number two and number three reasons for startup failures are 14% failed because of bad marketing. 13% failed from ignoring their customers. From your experience, what percentage of series A funded startups have the vision and the budget to hire outside brand building experts to establish a brand and the brand marketing strategies for the right customers from early on. Okay. If these startups are not doing the right thing early on, which is to build a brand systemically, what can be done to bring the founders to the right path? As you know, a brand is a lot more lucrative and powerful than a mere product or a book of business. So you can compare Apple with Microsoft. Apple is a brand, and Microsoft is forever a machine and Apple can command such a higher prices because of um, it has faithful followers, okay? So, so the question is, if the, most of the start, startup uh, founders are either short-sighted or they are busy pulling out fires in other areas and they don't have the vision and the budget to build the brand early on, what can bring them to the right track?
1: So this is a mistake a lot of founders make because they a lot of them are technical, they're engineers, they're really good at building product, but they aren't necessarily good at, at branding or marketing or even customer acquisition or any of the other things that you need ultimately to be successful. So to go back to Steve Jobs, he was brilliant in multiple areas. That's what made him so amazing, right? And you look at people like Elon Musk today, you know, they're, they're brilliant in multiple areas, right? They're not confined to one That's what makes them. And Bill Gates, even, he was still a really good business person, right? And he wasn't in, but he was also a technical geek, like who understood the ins and outs and could code and do all that stuff. So with startup founders, you know, when they get their Series A funding, Uh, This is what I like to tell them. So you be prior to series A's, when you are bootstrapping it, when you are angel funded, when you get your seed funding, which, you know, somewhere in between, uh, uh, you know, series A and angel, those are all times when you're really working on the product market fit. You're trying to create the best product possible and find the customers that really need it. Most VCs today step in, Once you found the product market fit, meaning they aren't giving you the money to just develop technology at that point, they are giving you the money to scale your business and scaling your business is all about branding and customer acquisition, right? So in essence, branding is your message and branding enables you to uh, focus and have a strategy for acquiring customers uh, and, and embracing them right? So that they become yours forever. They become real devotees. Um, So you need to understand that you are in a transition point as an entrepreneur upon the series A funding, going from a a primarily R&D oriented company, you know, that is exploring market and trying to figure everything out to a company that is about growth Mm -hmm. and, and growing and reaching out uh, engaging with your customers at a very deep level. And you ultimately, just like you have an R&D budget, you need to have a budget for brand and marketing. And you need to also have the expertise on board to actually implement that. Because right. it, you may be incredible at what you do, mm-hmm. and there are certain products that can just grow virally. They're designed that way, right? They, they don't uh, need a lot of uh, marketing to, to work. But marketing, put it this way, marketing... Takes an even good product that's growing and will just make, if you do it right with a good brand and everything, it would grow much faster, right? So even if you have a viral product that, that's out there, you can supercharge that product uh, by focusing on the, getting the right expertise, those people who are brilliant at it, onto your team, either as permanent members or as consultants to help you to the next step.
0: Yes, I totally agree with that. Okay, so startup founders must be superb sellers from day one, selling their ideas to co-founders, teams, selling to investors, selling to prospects and customers. Yet, few have mastered the art, science, and craft of telling inspiring stories that convince people. From my own experience of mentoring founders to tell their stories, in pitch decks and executive summaries. I found that they may be brilliant engineers or even financially savvy, but often cannot communicate effectively to their target audience. What do you suggest they should do to overcome this deficiency?
1: What I suggest is people have their strengths. so Most of us are good at certain things, certain types of thinking. So some of us are very good at complex ideas and getting very technical and very deep in the subject. Others are good at taking something very complex, simplifying it and listening and understanding how to present it to others so that they can relate to it and understand it. You as an entrepreneur need to look at your team, right? This is your job as a CEO to look at your team and say, do we have this expertise on our team? If not, How can we bring this DNA into our company? You know, are there people out there? I always say, if you're not the best at something in the world, but you want to build the best company in the world, you need to find the people who are the best at it, the best at those things and bring them in. This is why I tell entrepreneurs, you know, when you're starting a company, your job is not to worry about fundraising at the beginning. It's not to worry about your... at the beginning, because your idea, like I said, is probably not right. You're going to have to work through this. What you need to worry about is the people. You need to get the right combination of people on your team. And if you can do that, you will iterate on this and everything will come together. Yes. So most people, most entrepreneurs spend far too little time on figuring out who they need on their team and then going after those people and incentivizing them to join their team early. And they spend too much time focused on ideas and product, Uh um, which are very important, but the best idea in the world without the best team, you'll just fumble the ball. You will fail to implement that. Somebody else will implement it better. So you could start with the best idea, but if if you don't implement it well, Uh, somebody else is just going to pass you up. And as you know, it's kind of a winner take all market out there. You know, if you're one of Zoom's many competitors Mm -hmm. that, you know, fumbled the ball, didn't quite get it right. uh, We're not using your product. All of us are using Zoom right now. So we're all using Zoom and all those other products out there that were pretty good, but maybe, you know, they didn't quite get there. uh, They're going away. They're dying. You don't want to be one of them.
0: Yes, totally, I absolutely agree. Um, It seems that angel investors nowadays expect startups to show traction, revenue, and profitability at a level almost like series A. Angels are no longer the traditionally defined early stage investors who take more risks. What do you think? Um, If you agree with me, is it getting harder and harder for bootstrapping startups to survive? before they get angels to open their wallets?
1: So it depends on the angels. So there are still traditional angels out there who come in very early, take a huge risk on a team with just an idea. Um, They are really necessary for startups to succeed. Like you said, without them, it's very hard on your own money a lot of times, especially, you know, if your idea isn't something you can just do super cheaply and you have enough to survive, uh, it's really hard to get to the next step. So, um, a lot of the angels are called super angels now, meaning they'll put in more money, a lot more money. They won't put in like 10,000 or 50,000. They'll put in like some of them a million dollars, one person or, or even more. Uh, but they, they often wanna wait because uh, they, they have found the same way that venture capitalists have found that the hardest part is finding that product market fit and and the right team. And that usually takes time, right? It doesn't happen instantly. Like you wake up one morning, a flash of brilliance and everything works, you know, it just doesn't happen. It takes time. So they say, well, let's wait. And when I find the right company, that's everything is gelling, you know, meaning they have traction, I'll just put in my money and then it's a surer bet. Nothing's a sure bet in this world, but it's a much surer bet than placing a lot of bets on very early stage startups. However, that leaves you with the problem. You still need the money. Now, what I will tell entrepreneurs is that it's always been hard to raise that first money. Always. It might feel harder now. It was never easy, right? It was, you, there was no time in history. And in fact, honestly, now it's easier than it ever was before. It's not harder. So it's still not easy, but it's not harder. It feels harder because there's a lot more money coming into later stage companies. But there was always uh, uh, there's never enough money for these early stage companies. Never. Uh, They're always struggling. And um, but because there's so many successes now in the tech sector, you know, and, and later on that there's still there's more people actually angel investing than there ever were before. Way more people. But there's a lot more companies too. There's a lot more competition for that money. So you're getting a lot of competition, um, a lot more angel investors at the early stage, meaning it's still hard. But uh, if you have the right idea and you can put together the right team and you can get that early evidence, the money's there.
0: Yes. Okay, good. Um, In your book, you said that startups need, quote either a big win or the creditors and the investors will gobble everything up. Could you explain it? So, in-
1: investors typically want to protect their investment. So, if your company goes nowhere, they want their money back, right? So, they put in terms into the agreements you make, like what are called liquidation preferences and other terms, so that any money that comes in if you sell your company for, you know, a fire sale or a low price, they get first. They get first dibs on that money. They like we put the money in. We Uh, want to get that money back and they call it, they do this by having two shares of stock, a common stock and a preferred stock. Now the preferred stock has special rights to that early money. So that means that I've known a lot of entrepreneurs who've worked for years on their startup. They end up selling for maybe $50 million, which sounds like, oh my God, but they have raised tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars so that 50 million doesn't go into their pocket you know, that, that 50 million goes back to their investors before they get a penny. And none of the common stock gets money. So that, that's the reason you, if you're gonna sell, if you're gonna raise a lot of money, which startups tend to do now, you have to sell for multiples of the amount you raised. So you have to, so you need a big hit. You need a big hit to, to get over that threshold to start to see money flowing into your pocket. When you get over that threshold, what we call liquidation preferences, then the money, all the stock converts to common stock. So everybody starts being treated equally, but only once you get over that threshold.
0: I see, got it. So um, monopolies like Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, they have all the money to buy or crush startups at infancy. It seems that more and more startups end up bought by the few big players only to make these monopolies even bigger. What does it take for entrepreneurs to beat monopolies at their own game?
1: So the fact is you can never beat a monopoly at its own game uh, without certain ingredients. So uh, we, if a monopoly, A monopoly has all the advantages, right? So they have the customers out there, they have the marketing, they have the brand, they have the distribution, they have the technology, they have everything, right? You need, there are only two ways to beat an existing player in the market, you know? And they don't even have to be a monopoly. They could, any, even, you know, uh, just a, a company that's doing well in the marketplace, how do you beat them? So the only two ways are one, you have to have an idea that isn't a little better You know, a product that isn't a little better than them, but that is exponentially better, so much better that all their customers are like, I've been using this for years, I feel comfortable with it, you know, we have it integrated into our workflow, but I am going to switch to this new product because this new product is so much better that I have to switch. So it's not incremental innovation. You need Uh, you need exponential exponential innovation. And this is what we call radical innovation. And that's my first book I wrote, Make Elephants Fly, The Process of Radical Innovation is about how entrepreneurs make these leaps to products that are so much better uh, that they can actually start to steal market share away from existing players. And then the other way is if it can't uh, be so much better then it has to be different. Literally, you can't play in the same ballpark they're playing in, right? Because they're a monopoly there. So you have to have a product that is in a market that is new, right? That they haven't touched yet. And so if it's not exponentially better or very, very different, not a little different, but like it solves a fundamentally different problem than them, those are the two ways to beat the big monopolies.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, that's how branding works. As a branding expert, when I build a brand, a business brand, I seek to differentiate it from all your peers and competitors. Or you are way better and focused at doing certain things, you know, or serve, uh, with your product or services. It's just the same philosophy. It's the
1: same idea. Yes. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. you have to have a place for yourself that people need to know you're the. You are the best person at doing this one thing, right? And you right. do it so much better than everybody else. They're all going to come to you for this right. thing right. that they really need, or right. you just do something they don't do. So they're going to come to you because you know you, there aren't a lot of people doing it, and right. you got you're you're
0: the one. Right. Okay. So it seems that for a startup to survive and thrive, not only all stars must be in alignment, teams of talents, uh, right? Product service services and the right fit of the product with the market, investment, the right business model uh, that can be scaled up fast, brand building and marketing and everything. And most of all, the founder must be made of rubber rather than steel, I love this, to keep bouncing back, resilience, okay? So among all the attributes such as resilience, uh, certain craziness, risk, risk tolerance, risk taking, business savviness, ability to gather the best team and let them buy in the founder's vision and the ability to know what the market needs and come up with a great solution that can be blitz scaled I'm borrowing a title of a book. Okay, so which among all these attributes, which is the single most important attribute for a successful entrepreneur? Is um, entrepreneurship an innate gift or a lifestyle or both? Uh, How much is nature and how much is nurture?
1: So I always say uh, that entrepreneurship is both. So there are certain people who are just gifted with being an entrepreneur, right? Uh, In their genes, they have the hustle, the drive, the creativity, all the right elements to be a natural entrepreneur. And it's sort of like a sports team, you know? If you want to get on a sports team and get in the major leagues, like you have to uh, have a certain build, right? A certain physical build, right? You, you can't change that. So there are some people I believe that were never born to be entrepreneurs. You know, they may be people who don't like risk, right? Who get extremely stressed out about uncertainty. People who have a really, hard time communicating with other people, managing other people, you know, all these, they shouldn't be an entrepreneur. They should let other people do that and figure out what they are really, really good at if they want to be really, really successful. So there is, uh, but even if you have all the right pieces, right? The right genetic pieces, you win the genetic uh, jackpot, right? Even if you have those, uh, if, uh, you, aren't open to learning and you aren't uh, ready to put in the time and the energy and really make it a a focus, you still will not succeed. Mm And I know a lot of people who aren't given all the right pieces, but they're given enough of the right pieces and then they work on themselves and they improve themselves and they fill in the things. You know, you, you don't necessarily have to be born with something. to to be able to learn it. So I will give you one example, a personal example. I used to be extremely shy. Uh, People don't even believe me when I say that now. And I used to be an incredibly awful public speaker. Like I literally could not do it. No, no see, you don't believe me, right? (laughs) But I worked on it and I trained myself And now I think I'm above average in in actually being able to public speak and I've, my shyness went away, but literally all the way through college, I was terrible. It was only in college that I made the concerted effort to change myself. And I put you in, it didn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of work in that way. Yes. You can learn to become a great entrepreneur. You still have to have, you know, you still, there's still, uh, it's a struggle, right? And you have to put in a lot of work and be really committed to doing it. But I have seen entrepreneurs who are naturally not that good, but they're smart enough. You have to have kind of this base level in certain areas. I mean, if you don't have that, it's really hard to, to go. But if you have, if in you is that base level, then you could take yourself much, much further. And we've seen this with athletes too. You know? They might not have been born with you know, the, 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 the fastest runner, the strongest you know, person on the team, but they trained like crazy. You know? And some of them become better than the ones who were naturally gifted because they, they didn't really uh, have to put in the hard work and have to uh, you know, figure it all out for themselves. So I tell entrepreneurs, if you have that drive, if you really want, you can go probably a lot further than you think you can right. if you put in the effort.
0: Right, right. Um, do you believe that technology has borders? What part does nationalism play in techno- technological innovation? Do you think America is falling behind comparing with China's national policies and direct governmental investment to stimulate technology advancement. So what do you, okay, what do you think of the competition between US and China?
1: So there's a lot of talk of this right now. It's especially uh, you know divisive area, I would say, in American politics, in American culture. And um, I would say we just need to recognize that every company, every country, if they have the means to do so, wants to be the best, right? Like it's always been that way between, if you go back in history, which I read a lot of history, it's that way between Britain and France, they were always competing and Germany and Italy and you know, in America and the whole world, right? We're always competing. We're always trying to improve ourselves. So the fact uh, that China is doing this is not really a surprise. Right? It's something all countries uh, have this ambition to acquire. Is America falling behind? I think because China achieved so much success in such a short amount of time, we feel like uh, we are falling behind. But in in reality, they are are catching up is what happened. And uh, there's still a lot of areas in China where they're not as advanced as the West. But China is a big country with a lot of resources and they have put a huge amount of money into um, education, into our fundamental R and D, uh, into supporting their startup ecosystem. I think we sh- we can learn just like China learns a lot from copying us. We can learn from copying things that China gets right, and there are certain areas. And I'm very uh, I'm hopeful now with the new uh, direction our country is headed that we can make the infrastructure investments. We can make uh, the R and D investments. We can make uh, the educational, the most important thing is yes. educational investments yes. in our country and our people so that America will do a much, will continue to do great things in the future, right? But only with this type of effort, not blaming China, that will not get us ahead, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just cutting off all, not, you know, all of us, I think what we want is a harmonious world. We don't want to have a world that we're at war with each other. You know, There may be things about the way China's policies that America doesn't like, but we need, in order to change those, we need to engage uh, with China in a smart way, right? So, uh, and, and I'm sure China, we do things China doesn't like, and it needs to engage with us in a smart way. And that's how you work things out, right? And you, just blaming, D- won't get us anywhere. We first need to clean up our own house, get our own act together, really invest in America, right? Um, and then uh, and then we also need to look out at the world and say, what can we do constructive in the world that can make the world a better, more harmonious, peaceful place for all people?
0: Mm-hmm. That's a very big subject matter. We can talk on and yeah, on yeah. just on that alone. Okay. Yes. Um, so I asked all my guests, on my podcast uh, for the interviews of the notables and influencers, this question. What does your brand stand for?
1: My brand, I came up with the name Founders Space. So I wanted to create a space. And this is very early on, uh, before you know WeWork or any of these other like co-working spaces were out there, but I wanted to create a space, not a physical space. But I wanted to create a a space that belonged to founders, a space where founders could learn and grow. And so that's what my brand means. It means helping founders learn and grow. And this doesn't necessarily mean that they would become the next uh, big, uh, you know, the big IPO uh, that's gonna be out there, the next billionaire. I want them to grow as a person. I want them to learn who they are and so that they can have a better life. And like I said before, some of them may be cut out to be founders. Some may not be cut out to be founders. But as long as they're learning and growing when they engage with us, I feel good about that.
0: OK, so your your brand stands for grooming the new technology leaders. Or...
1: Yes, so my job and my company uh, are how we see our brand is we're creating the space uh-huh. and giving entrepreneurs, the, the feedback and the tools that mm-hmm. they can use to grow It's okay. their space, right. Yeah. That they can use to grow themselves and hopefully their companies.
0: Yes. And obviously you have done a lot and contributed a lot, not just to Silicon Valley, but, um, to a better world in that sense. Thank you. And thank you. Okay. So lastly, allow me to circle back to my own passion for brand building by quoting your insightful words. Quote, it must either be exponentially better than their competition or else it must be radically different. Brand is for great companies and great founders. So I like those top 5% visionary founders to know that 10 Plus Brand Inc. is a full service branding and brand marketing agency. We decode brand DNA and product market fit and make it stand for something as a brand, create brand structure, strategies, and stories, and amplify with AI enabled inbound marketing and content marketing. We design look and feel, emotional undertone, and we thrive at video production to give a brand its heart, soul, and the mind that enables great user experience and make products and services emotionally attachable and delightable with visual, audio, sensory, and verbal beauty. Thank you for tuning in. Looking forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Thank you, Steve.
1: Thank you for having me. Sure.